and then we'll get into Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4. We really want to feel um, the weight of the significance of prayer. We're thankful for salvation. We are thankful for the church. We are thankful um, for the Bible and all of the knowledge and wisdom that you have provided that we might live rightly, that we might know your gospel. But we're so thankful that we are able to communicate with you. And we know that even though we don't know everything about how life works and how you work and how um, all of these biblical things point together, we do know that you are sovereign and that we know that prayer is effectual. Prayer works. You um, have promised to answer the prayers of your people. We want to be faithful. We want to pray rightly. We want to make prayer a priority. We want to um, make all of these things about prayer, Lord, things that are true of us because uh, we want to see your gospel and your glory in this world. So please help us believe that as we look at Colossians chapter 4 today. Thank you so much, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Once upon a time, in a time period that was a long time ago from today, there was a guy called Augustine. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may have heard of his name as Augustine. I might go back and forth because I tend to do that when someone has two names. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to refer to him as Augustine. Now, if I could explain to you the significance of Augustine as a Christian to Christians in church history, um, I would steal two sentences I heard from another pastor as I was learning about him this week. This is what another pastor had to say about Augustine. He said, the most formidable and influential theologian the church has ever known was Augustine. When thinking about his influence, many of those who have written about him have put him in third place. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Augustine. Augustine wrote over six million words in his life, and those words have significantly shaped the lives of many, many Christians to this day, way back from after he died, somewhere around 480, all the way up to now. Now, like all Christians, Augustine was born not a Christian. He was born a sinner, and he had a particularly crazy life that was full of all sorts of sins that were both known to people and private, only known to himself. Um, but he was radically saved from that life, and he was used in an amazing way in church history. Now, for people who have studied him, if you were to ask them, how was Augustine saved? There's a lot of factors that they may have referenced, and all of them were important, and they contributed to his salvation. Some people may have referred to the fact that he was sick of a lot of other religious beliefs. He experimented with all sorts of different worldviews, and after a while, he was sick of them all because they couldn't answer some of his biggest questions. They failed logically and they failed morally until he experienced the truth of the gospel. You might also be able to say that he was sick of his own sin. Because of the amount of sin that he committed in his life, he started to feel the guilt and shame of it, and he was sick of the fact that he was trying to relieve the guilt and shame, and he just couldn't find a way to do that. Many other people would very quickly point to his pastor. His name was Ambrose, and Augustine liked him because Augustine was very smart, and Ambrose was a very fancy talker. But he wasn't just a fancy talker, he was a very good preacher, and through his preaching, he learned more and more of the Christian truths that he eventually embraced and loved. 
And in an ultimate sense, in a most important sense, God ultimately was the one who saved Augustine. One day, Augustine was hanging out in a park, and he heard the voice of a young boy who was singing, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And even though he never found out where that voice came from, whether it was a person or something else, he saw a Bible sitting nearby, and he picked it up, and he read it. And when he read it, he was convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. He saw his sin for what it was, and he saw Christ for who Christ was. And that moment, he received Christ's free gift of grace through the gospel. All of these things shaped Augustine, and ultimately God saved Augustine. But if you would ask Augustine some of the important factors that contributed to his salvation, one of the important things that he would say would be his mother. In his own words, he said, I was saved because of the tears and prayers of my mother. Even though ultimately God gets the glory for his salvation, he would say that his mom gets special credit. Her name was Monica. Apparently, actually, uh, Santa Monica, close by us, is named after her. Um, she is what is known as a helicopter mom, if you guys know what that is. It's a mom who follows their son around and pays a lot of attention to them. But she was pretty crazy at it because she even followed Augustine when he left the country, actually when he left to go to another country multiple times. And the reason, because she was very worried about her son. She herself was a Christian, but she was married to an unchristian, and she knew how important salvation was. But no matter how she talked to her son or tried to convince her son of his sin and need for salvation, nothing she did worked. But as a faithful Christian, she never stopped praying for Augustine, praying that Augustine would be saved. Years later, Augustine would write an incredibly famous Christian book called The Confessions, and it was a biography about himself and his salvation, um, but it's written in the form of a prayer, a prayer to God, a prayer of thankfulness to God for his salvation, and he said this to God about his mother. He said, you, God, stretched forth your hand from above, and you drew up my soul out of the profound darkness because my mother your faithful one, wept to you on my behalf more than mothers are accustomed to weep for the bodily deaths of their children. Augustine always knew that part of the way that God saved him was through the prayers of his mother because of her passionate understanding that God answers prayer. Years later, when Augustine was saved, he recognized, just like his mom had recognized, how amazing salvation is and how amazing heaven will be. And even though Monica lived the rest of her life with a joy at eventually being able to be in heaven, she told Augustine much later that she wished, in her words, to tarry, that is to wait, a little more in this life so that you, my son Augustine, would become a Christian before I died. And my God has answered this more than abundantly. Regardless of all the situations of Augustine's life, even he and church history that's written much about him afterwards recognized how significant his mother's prayers for him were. That's not just true of Augustine. That's true of every Christian who's ever lived. And it's helpful for us when we ask ourselves a question that I think a lot of you have, and I know when I was your age, I also had. The question is, does prayer work? Does prayer work? Does prayer do anything. I know prayer is coming up a lot in the Bible, but does it actually accomplish anything? I think sometimes, many for, especially for you guys who grew up in the church, you can add a theological bend to that question. You could say, if God is sovereign, 
and he really doesn't do anything with my input, that God makes all of his decisions outside of me, does my prayer actually make a difference? If God is sovereign, why should I pray? In our passage in Colossians today, Paul talks about prayer. And Paul doesn't really talk a lot about prayer. He only talks about prayer for three verses. And the only thing that we really know for sure from these verses that he makes explicitly clear is that prayer is important and it's essential and it's a command. And that actually gives us a lot because God doesn't command useless, unimportant, and ineffective things. In three verses, we're not going to have an entire explanation on prayer, and I'm not going to preach an entire sermon on everything the Bible has to say about prayer, but this is one thing that we will certainly learn from this, is that prayer is how we participate in the progress of the gospel. Prayer is how we participate in the progress of the gospel. Now, when I say progress, what I mean is the spread, the multiplication, the worldwide acceptance of the gospel. And even at the beginning of Colossians, this is something that Paul was really pumped up about. He was excited that people all over the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation could accept the gospel freely by God's grace. And that not only everyone in the world could accept it, but even people who had already accepted the gospel were continuing to grow and bear spiritual fruit and evangelize that same gospel to other people. God was proving his power, and part of how that was happening was through the prayers of Christians. Christians praying for people they loved, people praying for missionaries like Paul, who was spreading the word throughout the whole world and doing what God commanded them to do. Prayer was doing something because God said it is how he would promise to spread the gospel to the world and invite more brothers and sisters into the family of faith. And Paul is going to tell us to do the same thing today. Paul is going to tell us that prayer is how Christ-united kingdom citizens participate in the gospel progressing. It's how Christians respond to Christ's global plan of reconciliation, how God is fixing everything through Christ, and he's already fixed us and spiritually transformed us, and he wants that to continue and grow throughout the whole world. Because we know he's promised to do that, then we pray for it. We call out to him. We ask him. We plead with him. We communicate our thoughts and intentions to him. We repent of our sin directly to him. And we know that we receive grace directly from him. And we ask him to reveal those truths to more and more people. I have one sentence that I think can sum up three verses of Paul. And I want to break them down in half and explain to you what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 to 4. Here's the sentence. Christians must pray intentionally and therefore participate in the progress of the gospel. Let me say that again. Christians must pray intentionally and therefore participate in the progress of the gospel. I want to break that sentence up in half and talk about that. So if you miss some of that, I'm going to repeat it a number of times through the sermon. But let's look at the first half of that sentence. Christians must pray intentionally. In verse 2, Paul is going to talk about prayer in three different ways. And what he's really going to talk about is how Christians should pray, what it should look like. And I think the one word that you could sum those three words up in is intentional. Intentional. Christians are to pray intentionally. 
That means prayer should be done with purpose because God's given it meaning, that we do it because it's how we know and prove to God that we trust that he's working and he's working through prayer. So I want to look at the three words that describe what it means to pray intentionally. And the first one is continually. Christians pray continually. Paul says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. That means devote yourselves to prayer, persevere in prayer, persist in prayer, be praying constantly, be focused on prayer. The point is that Christians have to make prayer part of their daily routine. Many of you guys have grown up with your parents telling you this. Now, anything that you do routinely, you do routinely for one of two reasons. Either it's important or you love doing it. You do a lot of important things routinely. You brush your teeth, I hope. You do other hygienic things. You go to school. You make yourself smell good or look good so you can do the various social things you want to do. You spend time with friends and family. You do things routinely because they're important. But you also do routine things. You do things a lot because you love them. You play video games. You update your social media. Whatever it looks like, you will do everything routinely because it's important and because you love it. And that's the reason we continue praying. We continue praying because it's important, and we also pray because we love God. When you love someone, you can only write letters to them for so long, or you can only think good thoughts about them for so long. Eventually, if you love someone, you have to tell them directly, and that's part of the reason we pray to God. We have unlimited access to God through prayer, and so we talk to him, we communicate with him, we passionately tell him what's on our heart, and we passionately ask him to do what he's called us to do and what he's promised he will do. And especially, that comes down to the gospel. Part of the reason we routinely pray is because we have amazing things to pray about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ is fixing everything. And one day he's going to prove that when his kingdom comes. And that is so amazing, not only because it's true, because God himself has promised it, but it's true because we're involved in it. We get to point people to Christ and show them how he's going to fix everything. And he's fixed us, spiritually speaking. And he's fixed our lives that we understand that everything has meaning. Nothing is happening accidentally. And all of it is working towards a sovereign good plan from a sovereign good God. And that should motivate us to make prayer something we do routinely. And so we pray continually. The second part of praying intentionally is to do it watchfully. Paul says, in prayer, we are being watchful in it. Watchful literally means be attentive or stay awake. And if you're tired coming in on Sunday mornings when we have the prayer meeting, to quote Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, I do not think this means what you think it means. Did you like that one, Kate? Just check. This doesn't mean, hey, I know you close your eyes when you pray, so make sure not to fall asleep, because that can be difficult. That's not what Paul is talking about. Because closing your eyes isn't actually supposed to be something that's essential to prayer. It's just part of focusing. When Paul is talking about being watchful in prayer, what he's really talking about is talking about praying in relationship to the importance of what God is accomplishing through prayer. Think about why Paul was pumped about prayer. Because he was transforming dead sinners to resurrected new life in Christ. 
and he was helping renew and continue to transform people who had already accepted the gospel. And only Christians could see that that was happening. Unbelievers could not see big differences other than people maybe acting nicer to them, but there was a blindness over the eyes of unbelievers. But Paul could see, as a Christian, what God was doing in the world because Paul could see spiritual reality. Paul could see the way life really was from God's eyes, and he could see that because he had what I heard a pastor refer to as the eyes of faith. Paul could see what was really happening. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For even though we walk according to the flesh, that is, we walk from a human perspective, we walk in physical reality, we are not waging war according to the flesh. There's a spiritual war happening in this world. It's a battle that God will ultimately win, but he has called us to participate in the battle. And one of the main ways we do that is through prayer that we would keep our eyes focused on our captain, that we would keep our eyes focused on what God is doing, that we would recognize that what is spiritually happening in a person is the most important thing happening in a person, that regardless of life situation, regardless of circumstances and situations, God is doing something when someone's character is changing and they are responding to the truth of the gospel. And that is why we live lives of observation. We are watching people, we are getting to know them, we are seeing what is happening to them, especially spiritually. And we are praying that God would continue to do his work inside of them, that they would recognize the truths of the gospel. And the question we're asking ourselves is if that's the way we think about the world. The way one pastor put it is, are you keeping your eyes of faith open? This world is not going to tell you that there is a spiritual dimension to this world, especially the way God sees the world. And part of the things that happens when we pray is we're keeping our eyes on the spiritual existence of this world and what God is doing in the hearts of people and praying that he would continue to do things that would glorify him by the salvation of sinners. We pray intentionally through praying continually and watchfully. And the third way is thankfully. Colossians is probably one of the most thankful books in the whole Bible. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said that he prayed because he gave thanks. Prayer and thanksgiving, in Paul's eyes, are like the same thing. In chapter 2, verse 7, he said, walking with Jesus means abounding in thanksgiving. Being with Jesus equals being thankful. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, 16, and 17, Paul mentions thankfulness three times because it's so wrapped up with being a believer in the church. Being with believers is supposed to be a thankful thing. The whole point that Paul is trying to mention over and over in Colossians, and again now, is that being a Christian should be something full of thankfulness. And not a forced thankfulness, a natural thankfulness. A thankfulness that comes naturally as a result of knowing how good the gospel is and how good the consequences of accepting the gospel are. If there's one thing I can say to you guys as much as I can possibly say it, it's this. It is good to be a Christian. It is good to be a Christian. So often when we talk about prayer, we can immediately feel guilty. It can be so easy to think, man, I don't pray enough, or man, I'm really not caring about prayer like I should. 
And yes, there should be a sense where if we're stubborn about prayer, we should repent of it. But prayer is not supposed to be something that sends you on a guilt trip. It is supposed to remind you that you can live a thankful life in Christ. God wants you to be thankful. And the result of that is you will be thankful if you remember the truths of Christ. You will remember how good it is to be a Christian because of what God has said to us in his word because of the truths and the promises that he provides for us that naturally bring you directly to his throne on your knees and say, thank you, God, for what you're doing. And when I don't know what you're doing, thank you that I can trust that whatever you're doing, it's good. Praying intentionally means praying continually, praying watchfully, and praying thankfully. And there's a reason we do that, and that's the second part of the sentence that I gave you. Christians pray intentionally, and here's the second part, and therefore participate in the progress of the gospel. And therefore participate in the progress of the gospel. Verse two is all about how we pray, and verse three and four are about what we should pray for. And if I were to ask all of you one by one what we should pray for, you would probably mention many, many things, and they'd probably all be good. Really, there's not a lot of limitations about what you should pray for. And I've heard you guys pray for all sorts of things, praying for tests, praying for people, praying for circumstances and situations. And none of those are wrong. And in verses three and four, Paul is not trying to limit our prayers. He's not saying only pray about this stuff. But what he is trying to teach us and teach the Colossians in this letter is that there are some things that are the most important things to pray for. There are some things that you have to pray for because they're essential. And really all prayer should be about this, that God would be glorified, that God would be glorified for people in the whole world who don't know him, and that God would be more and more glorified in people who already believe in him, who already have a relationship with him. And that means that we pray for gospel progress. That's what gospel progress means. That through praying, you are asking that God would continue to glorify himself by more people accepting and living in accordance with the gospel. Paul says in verse three, pray for us also. Every time you're praying intentionally, remember what we're doing because God has called me and all of these people who are gonna learn in the rest of chapter four who are participating in gospel process, progress, who get to explain the truths of the gospel, who get to see people go from deadness to eternal life and that's an amazing thing and we need you to pray for it. And when Paul reminds them that they should pray for him, it should remind us to pray for Christians, especially missionaries, who are propagating and spreading the gospel throughout all sorts of places in the world. Because God has promised he will be glorified and we wanna pray accordingly. And so he gives us an example of what we should pray for. It should make us ask ourselves the question, how do I pray for the progress of the gospel? If it's important, how do I pray? Well, Paul mentions four things in these three verses. Number one, pray for doors to open. Number one, pray for doors to open. Paul says, pray that God may open a door for the word. A door is just a fancy metaphorical way to say, pray that God gives us opportunities. Pray that God gives us opportunities, opportunities to do the work that he's called us to do. Because ultimately Paul is saying, I am not in control of my life. You are not in control of your life. We walk in wisdom, as he says in verse five, but ultimately any situation we have to share the gospel and any opportunity someone has to accept the gospel, all of that is ultimately in God's hands. It's up to God not only for people to be able to hear the gospel, 
but specifically for people to accept the gospel. It is up to God to open the door of the human heart. One pastor asked this question. I thought it was really helpful. He said, do you have any idea how tightly shut and bolted the doors are to this word? Do you have any idea how thick the darkness is? The alienation is extreme and the hostility is intense. If you are a sinner, that means you don't want to accept the gospel. And it is only by the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, by the truth of the gospel, that anyone could ever accept the gospel. It is impossible for anyone to open the door of their own heart. And that's why we pray for God to open doors, because we can't do it through our own strategies, through our own ingenuity, through our own explanations or illustrations. I certainly can't force you to accept the gospel from my preaching, and you certainly can't do it through your conversations no matter how God-glorifying and faithful they are. But the reality is God has said and called us to faithfulness that as we share the gospel, he will prove his supernatural power by making even the most stubborn sinners accept the gospel. Just like Paul. It was easy for Paul to admit that because he knew the stubbornness of his own heart. Just like Augustine in his confessions, it is easy for sinners who have accepted the gospel to know God answers prayer because they got saved. When Paul explains meeting a woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, he explains he shared the gospel to her and she accepted it. But the way Luke writes it is he says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Our job is to pray that God would be faithful to his promises, which he has always said he will be, by praying that he would open doors. But because we're still called to faithfulness, And because we want other Christians who are evangelizing and who are acting as missionaries throughout the world, because we want them to be faithful, it also affects the second thing that we pray for. And the second thing we pray is that Christ would be declared. Paul says, pray that God would open doors to declare the mystery of Christ. If I were to ask you what the mystery of Christ is, my hope is that you wouldn't have to give me a big, massive explanation of the mystery and simply say, the mystery is simply the gospel. That's actually what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse uh, 27. He says, God's chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then he explains what it is. He says, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a mystery that a holy God could ever be with sinners. It is surprising. It is amazing. It is even confusing but it is true and it is available for anyone, no matter what situation they are in, to accept it. And it is because the mystery that Paul is talking about is that God has made a way through Christ that any sinner can be reunited and in relationship eternally with him. God paid that price at the highest cost imaginable and he did it for a people who hate him. It's not a mystery because it's confusing. It's not a mystery because it's magical. It's a mystery because it's mysterious how God could create such an amazing plan that is so hard to understand, and yet when we understand it through faith, we recognize that only God could have come up with this plan. Only God could have made such a perfect plan through human history that would culminate in Christ dying on the cross for sinners that it would satisfy the justice and wrath of God and that guilty sinners could be right with him. And that 
should hopefully make us recognize that when we have opportunities, when God, opens, when God opens doors for us, we need to know what should go through the door. If I were to pray for God when I was your age, I would pray for friendships. I would pray for popularity. I would pray that I could be more socially acceptable. I would pray that things would go my way in school, with my family, on my sports teams. I would pray for opportunities to be in relationship. But if God opens a door for the gospel, what needs to go in is not me and it's not you, it's Christ. When God opens opportunities or gives you opportunities for friendships, no matter how fearful or frightful it could be, just remind yourself, we can't fix anyone, but Christ can fix anyone. And he's offered to fix anyone because he's gonna fix the whole world. So if you have an opportunity to preach the gospel, and if you would pray for missionaries and other faithful Christian evangelists to explain the gospel, pray that they would have opportunities and that they would introduce Christ in those opportunities that people would accept the gospel. There's a third thing that Paul mentions that we should pray for. And really he doesn't command it to be prayed for, but it just kind of sheds light on the reality of Christian proclamation of the gospel. And I'm going to say it this way. The third thing that you should pray for is to pray in the worst situations. Pray in the worst situations. And I say that because in verse 4, Paul explains that as they should pray, they should remember that on account of this gospel, that means because I preached the gospel, I'm in prison. Paul was in prison as he wrote this letter. If you want an example of how firmly shut the human heart is to the gospel, just remember that just for preaching the gospel, Paul was imprisoned, which means that anyone that he, a Christian missionary, Christian evangelist, or even us, anyone we preach the gospel to, has a heart that is hostile to the gospel. What we are really praying for is that God would accomplish an impossible mission, a mission impossible. Raise your hand if you've seen the Mission Impossible movies. Anyone seen them? They're pretty fun, right? I don't know where they're at in terms of like appreciation in your guys' peer group, but I love those movies. I enjoy them a lot. They're just goofy and fun and whatever. And you guys know why they're interesting. It's because it's a Mission Impossible. You're wondering how Tom Cruise is gonna like pull off this thing. But that's actually based on a really old television show. And I'm not dating myself because it was alive way before I was born. But the whole point is it was this kind of campy show where these people would get together usually for a heist or something like that. And whatever they had to do was, as the title suggests, impossible. And what would happen is they would put all these things together, all these equipment pieces and different people who specialize in different things. They'd bring them all together to try and accomplish this heist. And the whole episode, as they're explaining various things, you don't know how it's going to work together. Sometimes they'd have like a locksmith, and you'd be like, okay, well, he's gonna open a lock, that makes sense. But then sometimes someone would come in with like a dinosaur costume, and like, how is that part of the plan? That makes no sense. Or some guy comes in with a hammer, it's just like, well, that could be used for lots of different things. But then the end of the episode, you would see that all of it came together for a purpose. All of these pieces were important, they were integral, they were essential, and they all came together, and you could see just how amazing these people were just how good they were at accomplishing a seemingly impossible mission. And if that's true for human beings, it's a million times more true of God. 
The gospel really is mission impossible. It is a mission that seems like, especially with the pieces God puts in place, how on earth is God ever going to save anybody? Let alone so many people from so many different backgrounds and different cultures, different circumstances. How is the same message going to save anybody? Especially when people like Paul, faithful Christian men, and many other faithful Christian men and women are being imprisoned for this thing. Well, that's where God thrives. God thrives in the situations where it seems absolutely impossible so he can prove that no mission is too impossible for him. There's an awesome story, and I hope you write down the cross-reference in Acts chapter 16. You should read it tonight, or read it tomorrow. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and another guy named Silas get locked up in prison for preaching the gospel. And they don't even care. They start, it says in the text, They start praying and singing hymns to God, and it says all the other prisoners were listening to them. But just at that moment while they're doing that, it says that the doors were opened and all of the prisoners' bonds were unfastened. All the prisoners were free to run away. And there's a jailer who's watching them. And it says that the jailer immediately took his sword and was going to commit suicide. Because all of my prisoners that I'm supposed to take care of are free, so my life is forfeit. They are going to kill me, so I'm going to do the job first. But in the darkness, Paul cries out, stop, we haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. And the jailer is immediately convicted. And so he approaches Paul and Silas, presumably having already heard the gospel, and he says this, what must I do to be saved? Now Luke, who wrote Acts, didn't write that story to say, whoa, God supernaturally works through prayer in terms of bringing earthquakes and breaking people out of prison. Now, he certainly does because he did, but this was the point of that story, I think. God wasn't just proving that he could free apostles who are captive. He was proving that he could free the apostles' captors. He was proving that he could save even the jailer, even people who locked up people who shared the gospel. There is no person, no matter how stubborn, no matter how stuck in sin, who will be too much of an obstacle, whose heart will be too much for God to handle. God can save anyone. That should affect the way we pray when things go bad for us, when we're stuck in situations, when we think we've been faithful, when we think that God doesn't actually care about us, when we think that our suffering has come out of nowhere, when we don't think God is proving he's faithful to us. Those are not the times when we should stop praying. Those are the times where we should pray even more. Because all of those are still part of God's sovereign plan and we have no idea the kinds of amazing opportunities that God will provide in any circumstance or any situation, especially suffering. A faithful Christian in suffering is maybe the most amazing witness to the truth of the gospel there could possibly be. And people who are in way more difficult situations than us, they need us to pray for their faithfulness. They need us to pray that they would continue to deal with the suffering and the setbacks and the tricky situations and the situations that test what wisdom really is. They need people to pray for them, Christians to pray for them, that God would prove his faithfulness to them, that they would fight the fight, that they would remember, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, that even though we might get bound, that we might get captured, the word of God is not bound. There is no environment in which the gospel would not thrive. The gospel will thrive and do its work 
in any situation with anybody. Pray for open doors. Pray that Christ would be revealed. Pray even in the worst circumstances. And number four, pray for a clear presentation. And this one I think we can be pretty brief because we'll talk about it a little bit next week. Simply pray that conversations with unbelievers would be centered on Christ and nothing else. There are a lot of details to the gospel. There's a lot of people, a lot of places and nations. There's kings and other guys called patriarchs. There's stories that seem absolutely amazing, maybe too amazing to be true. There's situations that seem tragic, and you would ask why a good God would do something like that. And all of those stories eventually lead back to one moment in which a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem who is apparently the savior of the world. There's a lot of details to the gospel, and they're all there for a reason. They're all important, and they're all amazing, and they're all true. But the gospel message is simple, and we want it to be simple. We want it to be clear. We want people to understand the essentials as quickly as possible, and we want people who are faithful missionaries and evangelists, we want them to make sure that the simple gospel would be proclaimed clearly and articulately to people. You'll never go wrong if you just preach the gospel. The same gospel that saved you can save anyone. No matter how many details you might mess up, God is faithful to help people stay on track, to help explain what is most important about salvation. As one pastor said, it's not about the method, it's about the message. Desire most importantly just to explain the gospel, that God saves sinners by his free grace because he loves them and he sent his son to die for them that he would take the punishment for their sin and that he would give the righteousness of his son Christ for us that we would be righteous before a holy God. And that is enough to save anybody. Does prayer work? Yes. But not by our power and not because we can convince God to do anything but because by prayer God proves his power. Prayer is powerful not because of our power, but because of the power of the person we're praying to. Prayer works. And that's why prayer matters. Because it's part of the mystery of God's plan for the gospel to progress throughout the whole world. And because we know that, pray intentionally, which means pray continually, watchfully, and thankfully. And we pray intentionally because we want to participate in the progress of the gospel. That means we pray that doors would open, that Christ would go through them, that that would continue in the worst of situations, and that the presentation would be clear. In closing, I want to point you back to Augustine, who I opened this with. There's a scene in the Confessions, which he remembers one of the last conversations he had with his mom, and it was a conversation about heaven. She was excited about going to heaven, and so was he. But she was going to get there first. And as they were talking to each other, he explains in the confessions this remembering, this memory he has, but it's a prayer that he's praying to God. And we're invited to listen to him. This is what he says. We were talking alone together, and our conversation was sweet and serene and joyful. We had forgotten what we had left behind, and we were intent on what laid before us. We were wondering what the eternal life of the saints would be like, that life which eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor human heart has conceived of. But we laid our lips to our hearts, 
and to the heavenly stream that flows from your fountain, the source of all life which is in you. And our conversation led us to the conclusion that no bodily pleasure, no matter how great it might be, or no matter how much earthly light might be on it, it was unworthy of any comparison and was not even worth mentioning because of the happiness of the life of the saints. Heaven is so amazing that it should naturally motivate us to invite as many people possible to be there. And it should motivate us to pray for other people, especially our missionaries. The joy of heaven would be so amazing for them that no matter what suffering or setbacks they have, that they would never stop explaining the message that anyone might be eternally with heaven, in heaven, because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good and do good. I know even for myself this week, it's been amazing to think, God, if I know so many reasons why prayer is good and amazing, why don't I pray enough? God, if I know how amazing it is to have an opportunity daily in an unlimited capacity to approach your throne, why don't I take advantage of that? God, why don't I pray? And the reason is because I'm a double-minded person. Lord, we know as sinners we can be distracted by so many things in this world. We can find so many other things more important, but they're not. And God, we need you to remind us that they're not. Exams are difficult. Family is difficult. Friends are difficult. Life is difficult. But Lord, you have a sovereign plan for it. So please give us energy and motivation that we would pray and that we would pray for what's most important, that we would share the gospel and that others would share the gospel. Please, Lord, let us be prayerful people, people that can see the world and the spiritual reality of it as it really is, and we would pray accordingly, that we would ask you to do amazing things and that that would define who we are. That if we die, it might be written on our tombstones, I was a person who prayed. We really want that to be who we are because we know that you have promised it is how you work in this world and you accomplish amazing things and prove amazing things to us when we commit ourselves to be people of prayer. Please help us do that and to not do it out of guilt or shame, but to do it out of thankfulness because you are a good God and you have given us a good life and a good and perfect eternal life that you've promised. And because of that, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.